Well, welcome to Tech 37, the podcast covering technology, education, and collaboration from Worldwide Technology and today, Dell Technologies. My name is Rob Boyd. Today's organizations are nothing without their data. And as we've seen, a lot of change can happen in a really short period of time. As we're all doing our best to plan for what is a very uncertain future, there are emerging trends along with some new challenges in the storage and data protection space. Today, we have experts from Dell Technologies and Worldwide Technology, all with diverse experience in data storage, protection, and resilience. And so, gentlemen, uh, it is good to see you. I appreciate you joining us. Let's start with some introductions, if you don't mind. Emmett, I'll have you lead us off. What's your full name? What do you do? What are you responsible for? Yeah, thank you. Emmett Kazmarek. I'm the Global Director of Pre-Sales Strategy for the Data Protection Division here at Dell Technologies. Excellent, excellent. Andrew, how about you? Thanks, Rob. Andrew Braverman. I lead the pre-sales for Dell Technologies Unstructured Data Solutions for the Americas. Excellent. Thank you. And Dom from Worldwide Technology. Dominic Greco with Worldwide Technology. I work on our global engineering team specializing in data protection. Excellent. And then finally, but of course, I don't mean this in any other way. Todd, how are you doing? Thank you. My name is Todd Bolton. I also work on the global engineering team and I specialize in primary storage uh, covering Dell Technologies. Excellent. Okay, so we do have a good split then on uh, kind of the data protection side and storage and where those uh, things will come up. So let's start with you, Emmett, uh, just kind of lay the groundwork here. How would you describe the current environment, which includes, I mean, our, really our current environment, like since March, maybe, with regards to uh, storage and data protection? What's the best way to characterize it for today's conversation? Absolutely. Uh, so if you look at what's been happening in the industry as a whole, organizations' digital transformation now is really being shaped by the current times we're living in. And there's this huge push now at, with data being distributed to the edge more than it ever has in the past. And there's the need not only to support all the new work from home requirements that organizations have, but also to protect that data and to also being able to identify when the data has shifted and it's no longer um, being accessed in the appropriate manner. There's a security aspect that comes along with this to make sure that as we are pushing it out to the edge, as we are being able to stand up and support the people at the edge, that we're able to also protect that data and identify when the change rate has skyrocketed or when the uh, file name no longer, or the file type no longer matches the extension. So it's not just about being able to stand up and support it and protect it, but also recover in the event that there is some sort of uh, ransomware breach or there is some bad guys that are getting into the network holistically. The other big thing that we're seeing is a shift here is organizations are really looking to make sure that they can stand up and support that consume type model as they're going into this digital transformation. They're going through application rationalization and identifying, you know, does it make sense for us to re-host the application? Does it make sense for us to re-platform or refactor or even go out and just straight up repurchase and move it into a SaaS model? And so as they're going through this, making sure that they're able to not just stand up and support those environments, but also protect them across the board. Now, simultaneously, though, they still have the 
traditional applications that they're gonna to need to support as well. So there's this need on both sides here to be able to provide proven technologies while also being able to provide modern innovation as uh, customers are embarking on these journeys holistically. You know, when we were talking earlier, there was a term that you used um, that I thought made a lot of sense in this conversation. Because for one, I like the fact that you guys wanted to talk about the relationship between uh, kind of data protection and storage as an overall focus on resilience, um, which I like to me anyway, uh, being someone who overly focused on security in the past, there's a distinction there, it feels like, between uh, simply trying to protect and assume that you're always going to be able to be successful with that versus maybe facing a reality that that things are going to happen and you need to be thinking in terms of your knowledge that it happened and then recovery uh, to, you know, to an active state. Because it feels like, as I mentioned in the open, organizations are so much more dependent on their data than, than anywhere else. I mean, literally you can disappear with your data. Um, so I'm curious, uh, kind of, as we look at storage specifically, it, could one of you weigh in on, on, um, where, uh, you know, what's happened with the change in storage? I, I let me do it this way. Andrew, we were joking earlier yeah. cause I made a joke that you had been focused on unstructured data for quite a period of time in mm -hmm. your background. And I was, I was upset that we haven't solved that problem yet. Why is it still unstructured? Yeah. seems like we would have structured it by now. Um, and it's actually getting yeah. worse, right? Uh, you, you talk about businesses that are, are really built around their data. You know, we, we've had this idea of data capital, data as capital. And the fact that the, the business data that our customers have is fundamental to their business. It is so important for them to be able to capture the data and monetize it. So talk about, you know, why haven't we wrangled this? Well, uh, unstructured data is actually getting less wrangled. You look at the uh, data growth across the industry, greater than 80% of new data is unstructured. And when we say unstructured, that means it doesn't fit into a database. Traditionally, that means it's going to be stored into a file system as files or stored in an object system as objects. Uh, but it's increasingly meaning things like streaming data. How do we record what's going on, learn from those recordings as we play them back, and then actually start to act on data in real time or near real time? Uh, the challenge, of course, with, with that is it's so widespread. There's data coming from everywhere, right? So what's unstructured data? It's uh, genome sequences as we're trying to figure out how to, to combat COVID. It's uh, creating movies. Um, you know, recently I had a very interesting conversation with one of my colleagues. You know, how do we deal with uh, creating movies in this time when you can't put all these actors in the same place? Yeah. Um, so, there, you know, movie studios are looking at using things like the Unreal Engine that powers Fortnite to make movies with individuals sitting in the same, they look like they're sitting in the same scene, but they're physically completely separate from each other. Yeah. All of that video data, that's all unstructured. All of the tweet data, all of the sensor data that's coming off of systems in our factories and, uh, and, and whatnot. But I think the most uh, relevant one that we have to our, our own lives today as we try to open the economy back up is... Uh, how do we start looking at individuals as they're moving through places and determine sick versus not sick, that kind of binary approach of, of what that looks like. Um, and we've worked with a lot of ISVs on building video surveillance for a long time. In fact, video surveillance data is absolutely unstructured. So we work with ISVs that do that, uh, but most of the ISVs and a few in particular are starting to take advantage of thermal imaging cameras, which are not anything new, but, Thermal imaging cameras that are accurate within half a degree, which means now we can start to say, instead of 
go scan that person with a thermometer as they enter the store. Well, we don't have to do that. We can look at the cameras and we can have software and we can have AI look at that data and uh, determine, well, I should not allow this individual into my store or my business or not. And then uh, we can capture and, and learn from that data going forward. And of course, we'll have to keep that for a long time for uh, any kind of future uh, concerns or, or litigation that might come from any of that. Well, see, that's interesting. And I want to get Todd to weigh in on this because I'm curious in, uh, it feels like now, because I, I don't want to do what I feels like maybe, although I enjoy this part of the conversation, there's a real-time nature to what you're saying as well in terms of processing, you know, where's that processing happening and how fast do we get back? Because now I'm thinking of a, a brick-and-mortar business who may be depending on thermal cameras uh, regarding admittance and suddenly if they've got connectivity issues or, or processing issues there, they may be afraid or, or put, their, put someone in jeopardy by letting in people they shouldn't let in or may have to shut down because they just don't know what they're dealing with. But Todd, what's your what's your feel in terms of today's environment? And you're you specialized from a storage perspective, correct? And and so as you deal with primary storage, how uh, what are people missing these days? What's important to understand when it comes to resilience and storage? Well, I, I think that the conversation of storage has changed in general, right? You know, when I when I first started in this, it was pretty simple and straightforward. You had a server, everybody was happy, right? Today, you know, much uh, like Andrew was saying, the data is scattered everywhere, and it's not doesn't always fit into these nice, nice, neat databases that are all nicely structured. Everything ones follow, twos follows. Mm -hmm. You know, it's changed, right? So not only do we have to how to play in all the different fields, right? It's it's about, it's you still have your core, but now you've got that edge piece, and now you've got the cloud coming in, and you've got to be able to communicate across all of those zones at this, as quickly as possible, right? So storage has changed. Yes, there is still traditional block storage, but we're seeing this explosive growth, and you can think of things like phones, right? Mm -hmm. All of that is added to this explosive growth. People are streaming things all the time. They're doing their email from their phone. Well, that all needs to reside somewhere, right? So how do you get it? all these things to seamless, seamlessly integrate across all those different planes and then have the conversation over to, like, Dom and Emmett's space of, how do we protect all of that? How do we ensure that all that data that we've got and are putting on some form of storage has shifted a little bit, I think. Go yeah. ahead. No, well, I was going to cut you off a little bit. We were having a little bit of connection issues, although I, I want to hold on to that because I think, I think we're still capturing your point. And Dom, he's kind of teeing you up there. At this point, we're kind of raising some questions that need to be considered. Uh, and before we go back over maybe to uh, some of the rest of the team here, especially on the Dell side, and start talking uh, solutions and then pitfalls is uh, something I'd like to visit, uh, myths, uh, things that we run into. But Dom, uh, in regards to uh, your area of concern when we talk about data resilience, perhaps, um, what are the important questions that need to be asked in that area? Yeah, I think what we're seeing with, with the, re the remote work uptick is that we're also seeing an uptick in ransomware attacks, you know, destructive cyber attacks, right? And we know that data protection is a big part of that, right? So being able to 
you know, provide an air-gapped copy of your data in the event that you are hit with ransomware. And a lot of times when we think about ransomware and cyber resiliency, there's so much focus spent on endpoint security, network security, but data protection really plays a key part in that. And my, my really my message always to customers is, you know, don't forget to invest in uh, response and recovery. Gotcha. And I, I would assume, yeah, so I, the, the classic one, I think is probably old by now, but it's something I still struggle with, which is maybe something as basic as testing my backups or simulating a failure and seeing how well that, that goes. Because um, there can be an assumption that all the lights are green and that we're going to be just fine. All right, well, let's just move this well, to it. Oh, go ahead. There's actually an interesting aspect there, and I think it ties in back to what Andrew was mentioning earlier, is you know, there is this new shift of how we're doing day-to-day life. You know, here in the States, pretty much everybody's from a school district perspective doing virtual learning right now. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that actually just really happened to one of our customers out West is they had a ransomware event. They got in, they got past that endpoint security. And that's really why it's important when you're looking, you're building your new DR strategy that you're taking into account what your cyber resiliency is going to be. Because when you look at the NIST framework, the final pillar of that NIST framework is recovery. So you have to think about not if or when they get in, but or not if they get in, but when they get in. Yeah. And you know, luckily this customer, the school district out in California, had actually uh, taken this into consideration, and they had put in an air gap vault leveraging our technology back in February. So even though their production data center was a crime scene, as they put it, their vault was completely untouched and they were able to start coming back from this attack. Now, they had to bring in all the devices that they had provided to their students to wipe them and make sure they were clean before they resumed activity. But what could have been a devastating event that could have completely crippled them for the remaining of the year now is allowing them to resume classes again and get those devices back out and get operations back up because they had taken into account the fact that Okay, what happens when the bad guys get in? Because yeah. DR strategies, uh, you know, previously had really just thought of okay, if there is an event, I'm going to have asynchronous replication. I'm going to have access to all my machines at the DR site. In a cyber event, we have to be assuming that we're coming back from nothing, that we're having to completely wipe the machines and coming back from bare metal. So that really needs to be taken into consideration as organizations are going through this digital transformation and in the new world we're living in where cyber attacks are up nearly 4,000%. Yeah, let, let me just add to that, uh, Emmett. I think that you think about how you get back from an event, uh, that's a really, really important consideration. Uh, I think it's also important to think about how you get into that event or or long before that event. So uh, a lot of the challenges that we, f- we see with our customers is um, not just at, after the fact, uh, not having data, but what happens when you've neglected to capture that data or perhaps you said, um, I only need this for a short term and now I need it again and it's gone. So I think it's this long continuum of what do I capture up front? How long do I keep that for? And how do I protect it? And making those decisions uh, sometimes are are difficult. uh, And certainly I would suggest, and it's not just because I like to, uh, you know, I work for a company that, that makes this stuff. I certainly suggest store more than you need and make those decisions later. Be really uh, careful when you decide to throw things away, because the things that we've learned uh, in the the past several months, several years, is that uh, you know the data that we have 
in the past can continue to be useful. Things that seemingly were not useful, we can learn from. And if we don't learn from our past, it's very difficult for us to progress. And I see this as really the case for both how we capture data, how we store it, the policies and decision making we have there, and then of course to the protection uh, from all kinds of different kinds of events like uh, like Emmett was talking about. And oh, it, absolutely, and learning on these types of events as well as how we can take and continue to improve our technology. You know, and that kind of goes to the, the key of this around making sure your environment's hardened and protected. And one of the things that we've recently done on the data protection side, learning from the new attack factors that have been going on in the market, is what we've seen is these rise of attacks specifically on NTP servers, right? Because at the end of the day, your final line of defense, once there is this breach, this attack is your backups. Now, what happens though, or what has been happening, is these bad guys or the ransomware itself have been targeting the NTP servers and customers' environments. Now, all backup applications, all backup appliances are tied into an NTP server so that they can have their internal clock management. Mm. And what these bad guys have been doing is they either are spoofing the IP address of the NTP server or the ransomware is actually speeding up and corrupting the NTP server itself. So it creates this time drift. So that when it goes and pings the server, instead of saying that it's, you know, September 2020, now it's saying that it's December 2020 or it's February 2021. And even if these, you know, backup vendors claim that they've got immutable copies, if the system itself thinks that it's no longer the date it is and that, oh, I've got to expire off all these copies that I have here, it goes and does that process. And what we've done in hardening our technology is put in place actual gates that prevent this clock drift so that customers now can say, okay, I what is acceptable is an 18-hour drift or a 48-hour drift. And if there hits that wall, then it actually requires human intervention to make any changes to the system. So taking that advanced step, seeing what's going on in the industry as a whole and building it into our technology for our customers to provide them those fail safes is just one other area that we're going above and beyond to make sure that we're addressing this for our customers out there holistically. That was interesting because uh, for one, so I have, I keep, sometimes I look up cause I see, I have like surveillance cameras running here at home with a homemade system that I bought and I have scripts that run that delete off the footage uh, after a certain period of time. So I can easily see how this kind of thing, uh, you know, could bite somebody and I would think 48 hours of drift being allowed feels like that's quite a broad amount of drift, uh, knowing, at least thinking, you know, back to doing log reading and trying to figure out what happened in an event. Uh, I guess if they've drifted, they've all drifted together if they're all feeding off the same drift source. Uh, but uh, these are interesting areas. I'm curious, what other type of things, let me throw this one out. Do you ever have customers that feel like this kind of stuff is not that critical for them because they've begun moving or they have moved most of the critical infrastructure to the cloud? Doesn't the cloud just handle this for them automatically? <laughs> uh, yeah, there's, there's a lot of conceptions and misconceptions about cloud. Um, and that's part of the conversation you have to have, right? Because, you know, everybody thinks that you're going to get all of these things automatically like you did in the past, right? When you bought storage from us or Dell and you knew it was going to be protected, you, you would install some form of DPS and you would have everything backed up and you'd set up all these policies and maybe you're shifting things off. But what they don't tell you is they're basically a repository of information, 
<laughs> unless you suggest or ask the extra services, right? So those are things that people don't always consider. You know, the cloud is this massive area, but you have to think about all the things you take for granted in a typical data center or on-premises. And I think that's what, in some cases, doesn't get brought up in conversations is people forget about those things, right? Because they just take it for granted. That's not necessarily the way they all work. They all have those services, but unless you ask, you may or may not get those services. Yeah, and and those services, Todd, don't don't come for free. I think exactly. it's really, really important to think about. You know, storage costs in the cloud are are very interesting. When you talk about cloud economics, the real value of cloud is the scale up, scale down, automatic bursting ability, the ability to rent what you need at the time you need it and not pay for it when you're not. Uh, the challenge, though, and I think this, and and, and I'll ask Emmett uh, to chime in as well, but I think it's it's pretty true uh, on both the unstructured side and on the protection side, where the data that we deal with tends to be long-lived. We're not dealing with data that that lives over you know, weeks or days, we're living, we're dealing with data that potentially can live on for years. So think about things, you know, if, if I'm making a movie and I need to go and leverage some of those scenes in, in future movies, which uh, a lot of uh, the studios are doing, I can't delete that. I need to keep that for five years, seven years, 10 years. The same thing is true for data that is being used for machine learning or for artificial intelligence. These are things that tend to use large data sets that last over a large period of time. So the challenge that we have is how do you deal with that in a cloud environment where the economics really work very well for things that are bursty and that change, but don't necessarily work for those um, those longer term type of, of uh, environments and you know for us you know we've made some investments in specifically doing that how do we deal with taking what we would normally do inside a data center providing the right level of cloud connectivity allowing the customer arbitrage between the cloud providers you talk about artificial intelligence for example you may want to go into you know one cloud provider that does a really good job of renting gpus for certain workloads but perhaps you write an algorithm that is better at using you know uh tensorflow and and there's you know google has the tpu and there's a really interesting way of taking advantage of that well if your data is in one particular cloud provider it's very difficult to get it somewhere else so you have to think of strategies on how you not just collect all that data from the edge and from all of those sites, but how do you make it cloud accessible so that you can take advantage of those services in a way in in ways that are both economically viable viable, but also really doing the best thing with technology, finding the best tool for the job, uh, which is sometimes a challenge. Uh, so that frequently means that we have to talk about, well, do you have an on-premise copy that you've now replicated into the cloud? That's a possibility. Do you have, a multi-cloud or a hybrid cloud strategy where you need to take advantage of uh, a vendor solution that provides connectivity into all three major American cloud providers uh, with direct layer two access to the storage. That's an option as well. So there's a lot of things that you have to think about rather than just picking up everything and moving into the cloud and operating just like you did in your own data center. So I'm hearing two things, one of which obviously is don't be assumptive about what you think is supposed to be happening or is happening. Be sure and confirm. Um, uh, and it sounds like you're also, you're just raising a lot of things that we need to be considering. I actually, I'm going to try, I want to try something different here. Obviously worldwide technology is my go-to source for strategic advisement. You know, that's, that's independent of, uh, despite the fact that I know, and, and, and some of these guys here work directly with you guys from, uh, with Dell, but you know, you go to WWT to, to, 
potentially get a larger strategic value. I think the value that Dell provides is extremely strategic and tactical. And I want to allow you guys to kind of take off your hat, which says I'm trying not to sell anything specific, but I would like to get specific. And so I want to emit today, what are the technologies and the solutions that you and your team are providing for customers that you've seen, you know, the, the, the lights go off and go, people go, I'm so glad we're doing this now. We didn't know about, you know, what kind of stuff is really taking, uh, taking, getting traction, put it that way. Absolutely. Um, so really three key areas that we're focusing in on that our customers are really as well aligning with from their digital transformation as a whole. Going back to the previous talk, we were just talking about cloud, right? And the importance of protecting data in the cloud. There was just an article the other day um, around how a former Cisco employee five months after he was let go, Deleted went in to the Cisco AWS account virtual and deleted yeah. 16,000 virtual machines that were housing web, the WebEx environment. Net net of that was over $2 million in downtime that it cost uh, Cisco as a whole. $1 million from internal employee uh, hours and then a million in what they had to pay out to customers as a whole. So you just look at that right there. Yeah. That, that clearly identifies just the, the need to protect that data in the public cloud. And when you, Andrew was talking about the cost of storing things in the cloud, and one of the things I love about the public cloud, it's the great equalizer, right? So everybody's consumption up there in the cloud, you, you have a cost associated with us. And one of the great things that we've done is taken our proven IP, our deduplication and reduction algorithms, and we're leveraging that for our customers in the cloud. It's one of the reasons that Gartner praised us in the recent Magic Quadrant, which had us for the 15th year leadership quadrant, is our ability to provide those reductions greater than anyone else out there. And it's one of the reasons we've got over 12,000 customers that leverage our technology across the hyperscalers, across AWS, GCP, and Azure. And it's why we're protecting over three exabytes of data in the public cloud. So that's one key area right there. The other two key areas that we're really focusing in on as well for customers is going back around what we're doing from that ransomware and really focusing in on being able to provide customers the ability to recover when there is an event, providing them that air-gapped copy of their data with AI and machine learning capabilities that is looking actually at the entropy of the files themselves to identify when the change rate is, it goes from being an average of 3% up to 98%, when the file type no longer matches the extension, and looking for common attack vectors that are known by different types of ransomware strains that are out there. And, and the final aspect is going deeper and wider in integration with VMware, specifically in what's happening with the cloud native aspect and Tanzu and our integration and working with the VMware team to integrate in Valero into our technology stack so that we can take that open source Kubernetes protection capability and give it enterprise grade capabilities from a speed and from a performance and from a scheduling capability. So when you look at those areas, those are really the three key ones that we're focusing in with and, and really resonating with our customers because it aligns directly with what they are doing from a transformation uh, side of the house. 
Yeah, I think I've seen storage costs in the cloud being one of the ones that people get most surprised by. Uh, it's almost like that water bill where you didn't realize a sprinkler was broken, except now magnified by 100,000. <laughs> um, you know, where suddenly you get this bill and you're like, well, what are we paying for? Because I've heard customers are even, you know, paying for consultants to help them figure out what they're paying for. And I think what you're saying there is, if, if I was deciphering correctly in one of your first points, is this notion of... Uh, make sure that you're not wasting storage that can be expensive. And especially if it's at a, at a hot tier, uh, you know, faster tier accessible level that you're not putting something up that's simply a lot of duplicates of itself or, or wasted. Let's make sure it's valuable data that you actually need access to, and you're not saving the cruft. Uh, well, I imagine and, that takes some insight. And using technology that reduces down that actual physical uh, yeah. footprint in the cloud, right? You know, the, your most expensive thing in the cloud shouldn't be your protection technology. That should be driving down costs significantly so you can invest in things that are the cool things and really driving the business and giving you that competitive advantage. Yeah. You know, being able to invest in microservices, AI, you know, and what we're doing by one, running primarily on object storage, on that native cloud storage up in the cloud, but two, then we're leveraging our deduplication and reduction algorithms to shrink the physical consumption up there as well, helps to drive down those costs substantially. ESG did a report and a study, and they found that we're anywhere between uh, you know, uh, 40% to 85% less expensive compared to wow. uh, competitive technologies out there. And that's from cloud consumption utilization, yeah. right? So, you know, the, again, going back to that point, the cloud's a great equalizer. And so by being able to drive down those costs and significantly reduce what you're having to pay allows customers to actually go and invest in areas that are important to them. And I, I want to kind of dovetail on to that. If, if I'm going to bring it back on premises and Dell recently launched a power store system that now leads in the data reduction across all the other testing. Now, worldwide, you know, as much as I have a Dell background and I <laughs> push Dell products, I also have to, you know, be fair. But what we do at worldwide is when we bring those systems in-house, we test them. And we test, we run the same test across all OEMs. Well, Dell now with PowerStore is number one when it comes to data reduction. So that's on premises. That's even before sending it up. So well, there's probably a combination a there, right? One reduction, which is which is that's amazing. Which is a pretty damn good number to hit. Yeah, Andrew, you were mentioning uh, before we were getting connected here about I think you guys are probably constantly helping worldwide technology outfit their uh, advanced technology center, yeah. so that they've got the latest stuff and that they're testing it, as mentioned, what was that you were speaking to and what is uh, kind of what are you seeing traction to the same question I'd asked Emmett earlier? Sure. I, I think uh, let me answer the second part first and then I'll roll into the, the first right. part. You know, we really focus on four key areas of the business. First thing, scale out file systems. The 1FS file system that you've seen on Isilon is now available on a product called PowerScale. PowerScale is essentially 1FS, that same operating system from Isilon, running on industry standard PowerEd servers. Power of that is that we've now taken advantage of the entire Dell supply chain, which is really, really powerful for us to create a 
physically smaller, lower cost type of solution. In fact, uh, we'll get into the lab in just a second, but we have some power scale gear coming into the uh, Advanced Technology Center as well. Um, and then we also focus on the object side of the house. So Emmett mentioned object being the cloud native uh, storage media. Uh, the challenge with object in general is that when you put data in object in the cloud provider of your choice, it's generally stuck there. So you, it's very difficult to arbitrate between cloud providers because getting the data back out, egress costs, all of those things can be very expensive. So we have the ECS object platform. It can run on-premise. It can also run in the cloud. And we have, uh, in fact, our Dell Technologies cloud partner that allows us to put that in a space that is accessible to all the cloud providers. Uh, same thing for OneFS, by the way. We can run OneFS in the cloud. Uh, and allow uh, connectivity from Azure, from Google Cloud Platform, and from AWS. Uh, we also now have the OneFS operating system running directly inside Google Cloud. So we have connectivity. It is running on our hardware, so it is very, very high performance, very scalable, really, really interesting opportunities for us to take your data into the cloud without having to deal with all of those inefficient cloud storage costs. And then uh, we've recently moved into this area of streaming data. We've introduced the streaming data platform for doing data analytics in uh, real time or near real time. And then finally, we have Data IQ, which is our uh, data analytics program. It allows us to scan metadata, figure out some of the historical trends. Uh, the really nice thing about Data IQ is that it's designed to be pointed both at on-premise storage, whether it's our storage or not. Uh, and also into cloud storage. So you can get a lot of really good information about what you have inside your data center, but also the data that's being stored inside those object stores uh, inside the cloud. Now, as far as uh, power scale is concerned, uh, the F200 platform, one U-box, uh, all flash. Uh, the idea is that within four rack units, you can have an entire cluster, including all of the backend networking, and uh, get started with uh, 1FS. Um, we are uh, in process of shipping a uh, power scale system to uh, the Advanced Technology Center. And, you know, you talk about uh, the outcome-driven nature of worldwide technologies. Uh, that's certainly one of the reasons we like working together. Certainly for me, driving the outcome is the most important thing. And I'm more than happy to say if, if we can't solve that problem, I'd much rather go outside, work with a, uh, a, a even a competitor to solve a customer's problem. The real power that I see, though, in Dell Technologies, especially working inside uh, the ATS with uh, with Worldwide, is that we've got the portfolio solution. Yeah. So if you're talking about artificial intelligence, for example, PowerScale is a fantastic platform for the storage, but we're not going to do any of the compute there. But we have PowerEdge C4140 with NVIDIA GPUs, and we can connect that all together. And then... We work with Emmett's team on how to make sure that data is protected going forward. So uh, we are all better together when we stop thinking about each of the individual areas that we focus on as just the silo um, and focus on the customer's outcome, really driving a business outcome for them, leveraging the technology that we have across the portfolio. So just to get this straight, you don't like to represent technology that you don't believe in. Absolutely. Okay. That's, that's, uh, like that's that. definitely true. I like that. Um, in terms of the ATC, as we kind of wrap things up here, and I actually want to go to Dom. Um, Dom, I, can you give us an idea of the resources um, and how accessible they are You know, remotely? You guys get a lot of toys to play with way beyond Dell, but it's how these things work together so you can simulate customer environments, provide guidance and strategy. I, 
how are you guys doing that in this space? What kind of stuff would, would be good to know? Yeah, I would say there are two ways that our customers can engage. They can go on our digital platform to www.com, create an account, and there's a ton of content out there, labs that they can launch themselves, right? Whether it's you know, data protection, storage, right? So we've got IDPA 4400, we've got a power store appliance, Extreme IO, data domain 9900, right? So they can engage there. Certainly our customers also engage us in POCs. And I think that's really critical because we're able to do these POCs at scale. So customers know that if they're going to buy something, it's actually going to work. So when I think about some POCs that we've done, we did a very large POC for a customer that had a 36 terabyte Oracle database that they needed to back up. They couldn't protect it in their current environment. It was taking you know over 24 hours to back up. We were able to simulate that in the ATC and show that they could back up this workload, I think in like three and a half hours, and they were able to make a decision and, and buy it. So we give that kind of assurance that if you do buy something, it is going to work testing it out in the ATC. Very interesting. So, um, Andrew, uh, excuse me. No, I want to go to um, Todd. The, uh, is a final word here, the ATC and the resources you guys provide, yes, on the technology side, but you guys also provide the ability for customers to, it sounds like, present their issues, present their bigger, seemingly intractable problems, and help them establish a strategy that may or may not include certain sets of technology? Well, it's it's all that and then some is kind of okay. how I look at it. Um, it. To kind of follow on to what Don was saying, we usually have gear in-house that we can uh, create or reconstruct or recreate, I should say, a customer's environments. But let's say the customer is undecided and they want to see what, uh, you know, data domain does against pick another backup vendor, okay? Or they want to see power store against something pure cell. So they want to see, you know, some, some form of object store where it's power scale on the Dell side and, you know, something, you know, from another vendor. We can create those kind of environments where we, because we understand how the technology works, we can set up and control the environment so that it's apples to apples, yeah. right? And then it's up to us to kind of say, well, here are the advantages and do the pluses and minuses. But it gives them the ability to see it in real life, to see what we're saying is true one way or the other. Now, that's right. perfect. Um, what, what works in there? Because remember, you got to app accelerates on one platform may not do so well in another. So it's a learning process for everybody involved. And yeah. so... That's one of the things I think we bring to the table. We try to stay on the forefront, like Dom said, with all the articles, right? So you've got all the latest information, articles written by engineers for engineers so that people can understand what's going on out there, right? And, and it's, you know, no holds barred. It's this is what we saw. This is how it works, okay? And I think it, it shows how willing worldwide is to work with a customer, to work with our partners, to show off and showcase things. And yeah. that's what I think the platform's really about. Well, that's perfect. Okay, well, thank you for that. And also, I want to thank all of you, to all of our guests. Guys, you represent Dell very well. 
Uh, as always, I've learned a lot. And um, uh, thank you for taking the time to share your knowledge with us. We will have more information, of course, uh, in the notes section underneath wherever you're watching this video so that you can get more information from Dell as well as engage at WWT.com. But I want to thank our audience for hanging out with us as well. Um, this is one of the reasons I love worldwide technology is because they're very educationally focused. Uh, and I think all good decisions first come with uh, a level of awareness that we could all use a little bit more with. And uh, I've never seen better partnerships in terms of, of how they bring everybody in, customers and vendors uh, included, to make sure that uh, that we've got a diversity of, um, of input as these kind of decisions are being made. Anyway, hope you guys enjoyed it. Thank you for hanging out with us. We'll see you on the next Tech 37. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Thank you.